Well, good morning. Happy Easter. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here with us this morning to celebrate Easter. We are so glad that you're here. It would be appropriate for me this morning to just thank Sonora High School and Dr. Bailey for allowing us to be here. This is our first Easter at Sonora High School. So that's... So thank you to Dr. Bailey and the amazing custodial staff, Justino, who's here with us today for all of the help in setting this up. Thank you for everyone who makes this possible week after week. Thank you for coming to celebrate with us this morning. I want to extend a special thank you to you if you're visiting with us this morning. I realize that being in a new place with new people can be a little bit uncomfortable. I realize that even in the worship folder we've given you, we're asking for your contact information. That can be a little bit unsettling because who knows what we're going to do with that. (laughs) I promise we will be responsible, okay? I understand that sometimes being around other people when you're expected to sing can be a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes just being around other people who are singing can be a little bit uncomfortable. For some of you, the fact that I'm still talking to you about this is uncomfortable, so I will stop. I just want to say... Thank you for being here, even if it is a little bit uncomfortable for you this morning because we're glad that you're here. And I think it's important that we are here this morning. But here's the question. Why are we here? Why are we here this morning? Why do we do this every Easter and come together? Why do we get dressed up every Easter? And I know what you're thinking. You're not dressed up. But for those of you who know me, you will realize this is the first and only time you'll ever see me in a shirt that is not gray or black. So soak it in, because you won't see this again until next Easter. Why do we get dressed up? Why do we give presents? Why do we give chocolate on Easter? Why do we celebrate? Why do we sing? If you've been with us, or if you received our invitation to be here this morning, you know that we're in the middle of a series, actually at the end of a series, called What's So Great About Easter? Because we do this every year, because we celebrate Easter, almost every one of us, every year, but we don't always know why. We know it has something to do with Jesus, and it has something to do with rabbits. But we're not necessarily sure why it's important. We don't always know. So... What's so great about Easter? Let me give you the short version and then we'll look into God's word and we'll talk about it a little bit more. When someone says that he's going to be killed and in three days he's going to come back to life, you pay attention to that person. And then when that person actually comes back from the dead and says, I have some good news for you, you listen to that person. And when that person tells you, here's the good news that I have for you, I plan to rescue you from all of the pain and all of the brokenness and all of the illness and all of the despair, all of the depression, all of the violence, all of the hatred, all the guilt and the shame and even the death that this world has to offer. And in exchange, I would like to invite you to be adopted into a family, the father of which is the most extravagantly generous father you will ever know, who loves you who loves you without condition, who loves you without distinction, who loves you desperately, despite the fact that you are a hopelessly degenerate sinner that will, has offended him and will continue to offend him over and over again. 
When he tells you news like that, you throw a party. You eat ham. <laughs> you sing. You hug strangers because that news is unbelievable. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's what's so great about Easter. And if you've walked in this morning and you did not know that when you walked in, then this may be the best Easter ever for you. And if you walked in this morning and you say, I already knew that, then my hope for you is that you would have a hard time containing your joy this morning. Because I am going to tell you, or I'm going to remind you, of why Easter is so great this morning. And before we look into God's word this morning, I just ask if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, today is a big day. We don't need to tell you that. But today is a big day. Today matters. Would you help us this morning to understand Easter Sunday? Would you help us to comprehend, to remember what it means? Lord, would you help us to celebrate? Would you help us this morning to see it with fresh eyes? And would you speak to our hearts this morning as we look into your word? We pray these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28? If you don't have your Bible this morning, that's okay. We brought one for you. They're in the baskets in the aisle here. And if you'd like one, if you just raise your hand, we'll pass one down to you. If you'd rather not do that, you can get up and get one. That's also totally appropriate at this time. If you don't want to do any of those things, that's fine. Just listen. All I would want to say to you this morning is... These Bibles are here for you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's our gift to you this morning. If you're using our Bible, we're going to be in the New Testament, way at the back, on page 835. Now, the passage that we're looking at this morning, it assumes a few things. It assumes that you know why these women are walking through a graveyard, and it assumes you know what grave they're going to. So if that's assuming too much for you this morning, let me catch you up. The women are walking to the tomb of Jesus. Jesus, the one who's widely regarded even today as a great moral teacher, and Jesus has just been executed. And I know what you're thinking. Why would anybody execute Jesus? Didn't Jesus just go around saying really nice things and healing people and holding lambs and telling people about God and his love? Isn't, all, isn't that all that Jesus did? Well, in addition to all those nice things that Jesus did, he also claimed to be the Son of God. And so Jesus has just been executed for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. And when he's executed, his followers scatter, and the Jesus movement is over until Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. So read with me. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, which is Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Most of you are familiar with this story. 
Many of you have heard it every Easter, but there are two things that the angel says that I want to focus on this morning, and I want to focus on them in the order that he says them. The first thing the angel says that I want to focus on this morning is he says, he is risen as he said. He is risen as he said. The angel says, Jesus has come back to life just like he said he would. Now, is that true? Because it seems like that's the kind of thing everyone would have remembered. You can follow along or you don't have to. If we just turn to the left in the book of Matthew to chapter 16, verse 21, it says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, okay, he began to show and tell them that that was true. Well, just across the page, Matthew 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man, he's talking about himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Okay, he said it again. Matthew chapter 20, flip over another page. Verse 18 says this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So he did say it. He said it actually a number of times. He said it in great detail, predicted not only his death but his resurrection. Perhaps the most compelling one to me is found in the book of John. We, we don't have to go there. I'll read it for you. In a conversation that he's having, the Jews come to him and they say this, What sign do you show us for doing these things? They say, Jesus, you keep doing all these unexplainable things, and you keep saying all of these things that we don't understand. And the truth is, they're actually quite offensive if they're not true. So what authority do you have to do and say the things that you're doing and saying? And Jesus says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And the priests say to him, it took 46 years to build the temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days? That's crazy. The author, John, tells us he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about himself. And it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus says, here's the proof that I have the authority to do and say the things that I'm doing and saying. Kill me and I will rise from the dead. Would that be enough evidence for you to know that I have the authority to say what I'm saying? And John says the disciples realized after Jesus' resurrection, they remembered that he had said this. And they said, it's true. Everything he said is true. The resurrection of Christ from the dead validates everything he said. Not everybody understood what he meant when he said that, clearly. They thought he was talking about the temple. But everybody understood who Jesus claimed to be because they used this exact conversation against him while he's hanging on the cross. Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and here's what is said to him starting in verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. They remembered what he said. 
and they knew who he claimed to be. If you're the son of God, save yourself, they said. They knew he claimed to be the son of God. They said, if you're the son of God, prove it. Prove it by coming down off the cross. It's not unlike what many of us have said or maybe still say to him. If you're God, show me. God, if you're there, give me some evidence. Show me some proof. If Jesus was your son, if Jesus rose from the dead, then prove it to me. And God says, I did. I did prove it. He is risen just as he said. He's not there. The second thing the angel says is this, come and see. Come and see. He invites them. He says, come and see the place where he lay. Come and see the place where he was and is no longer. The angel says the tomb is empty. See for yourself. He's not there. He has risen. Come and see the greatest apologetic, the greatest evidence, the greatest proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the empty tomb. The tomb is empty. My purpose this morning is not to convince you if you're here and you're skeptical. But if you are skeptical this morning, or if you're here this morning and you want to know, why is it that we believe that this is true and not just some exaggeration or not some legend or not some fabrication? The angel is pointing to the greatest evidence of the resurrection. It's the elephant in the room that everybody has to address on some level. The tomb is empty. Jesus isn't there. Where did he go? In fact, just a few verses after our passage this morning, the enemies of Jesus, those who have crucified him, have to answer this exact same question. What do we do now that he's gone? They knew he claimed that he would come back to life, so they took extraordinary measures to make sure this exact thing wouldn't happen. They were given soldiers by Pilate to guard the tomb. They were told by him, given a command that said, make the tomb as secure as possible. They actually sealed the stone over the tomb so that no one could get in, and then Jesus is still gone. Oh, no. This is exactly what we were trying to avoid. And their explanation is an interesting one. It doesn't necessarily hold water. They don't refute that the tomb is empty because they can't, because it is. So they can't refute that the tomb is empty, so they bring the soldiers together and they give them a bunch of money and they say, tell everybody the disciples stole the body while you were sleeping. There's two major problems with that explanation. Roman soldiers don't sleep on the job because when Roman soldiers sleep on the job, they get killed. So they don't fall asleep while they're on guard duty. Here's the other major problem with this explanation. The disciples are the last people in the world that are going to try to steal the body of Jesus. The disciples are crushed. The disciples are scattered all over the place, weeping because Jesus is dead. Their dreams of a Savior have just been shattered. They've been following this guy around for years, really believing that he was who he said he was, and now he's dead. They don't get it. They thought that Jesus was ushering in the kingdom of God right now. In fact, just a few days ago, they were fighting over who gets the best seat on the kingdom bus. And now he's gone. Their whole world, all of their hopes and dreams just bled out 
on a cross. And so they are cowering and they are scared. These are not guys that were conspiring to start a new religion. They really believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And they are really crushed by the fact that he's dead. So why would they have any interest in propping up this fake religion, this thing that they know is a lie, so that they could die too, just like Jesus did? doesn't make sense. Can I just say one more thing about this? I know this is kind of a, I was going to say bunny trail. That seems like a bad choice of words today. <laughs> For the same reason that that is a ridiculous explanation of the resurrection, the disciples stealing Jesus' body, it is compelling evidence for it. Can I tell you why? Because those same guys, those same guys that are so scared and so crushed and so broken, when Jesus does show up alive in front of them, they completely change. They completely transform. Each and every one of those men loses their life proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Except one, John, who's boiled in oil alive, and then he's exiled, which is probably worse. They really believed he was dead, and they really believed he had come back to life. All of that to say, here's the point, all of the explanations agree on the same evidence. The people who hated Jesus and the people who loved Jesus are all trying to explain the same set of data. The tomb is empty. Jesus is gone. And where did he go? He's risen just as he said he would. Come and see. Do you see? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead authenticates everything he said. It authenticates everything he did. It validates everything he said to his followers. Tim Keller puts it this way. This is a quote I'm going to read to you. It says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. When we started this series, when we started this conversation we've been having for the last number of weeks, we said, does God have a plan? Does God have a plan? Because we look around us at the world and we're reminded constantly that we live in a broken, messed up world that's full of violence and disappointment. Just this past week, just this past Monday, I heard that a friend of mine, a former coworker of mine, passed away unexpectedly. Young guy great guy, fun, fun guy, married. He has a son about the age of my oldest daughter. And whenever we hear something like that, and we each have an experience like that that comes around every once in a while to just remind us that the world that we live in is broken, and it's not right, and it doesn't feel right, there's something within us that cries out, there has to be more than this. There has to be more than what I'm experiencing right now. If there is a loving, all-powerful God, this cannot be what he intended things to be like. And Scripture says it's not. It's not. In fact, God has a great plan. And on page two of God's plan, we said, yeah, that's great. We're going to do our own thing. 
On page two of God's plan, we said we reject that plan and we're going to go with our own pretty sketchy plan. And we're going to see how that works out for us. And we find ourselves divorced from God. We find ourselves separated from Him. And then we find ourselves living in a world that reflects all of our sin and all of our selfishness and all of our problems and exposes all of the flaws of choosing our own way over God's way. So God initiates a rescue plan. God sends a rescuer. He sends his son, Jesus, to say, I will fix what you broke and I will restore you to what I intended for you from the beginning because what you're experiencing right now is not it. It's not what I intended. And Jesus says, follow me. Let me show you the way out. Let me show you the way out of your brokenness and into the kingdom of God and what he intended for you from the beginning. And don't worry about what it costs. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. See, the reason that Jesus can't come off the cross when they're all mocking him, saying, prove that you're God. Come off the cross and prove to us that you're God. He can't come off the cross because the cross is the reason he came. Because the cross is the price that he paid to rescue us. It's the work that he came to do. And Jesus paid that price to rescue us out of our brokenness and into God's kingdom. So what's so great about Easter, we ask? Well, Easter is the culmination of God's rescue plan because the cross accomplished the work and the resurrection authenticated it and said it was real. Everything that I said and everything that I did was true. I am the Son of God. I have come to rescue you. And the kingdom of God is a real thing and I just brought it. What does that mean for us this morning? Let me read it to you in the words of Jesus. This is the best way I can think to describe it. Luke chapter 15 says this. Jesus is telling this story. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Give me my inheritance. And he divided his property between his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the food that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I die here with hunger? I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. They threw a party. Jesus says, you want to know what my father is like? That's what he's like. 
He's not, he's not some tyrant waiting in heaven for you to step out of line so he can smite you. He's not some miser with his hand out saying, give me your money. He's a loving father. Jesus says, this is what Easter looks like. It looks like a father that loves us so desperately. He says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I just want you to come home and be with me. Because you've seen that your plan is a bad one. And mine is great. And you're my child. And I want you home. That's how Jesus describes being a child of God. Easter looks like a father who when he sees you coming from far away, he runs to you and embraces you and kisses you and says, come in, let's party because my child was lost and now he's home. My child had wandered far away and had seen all that the world brings and all that separation from me brings and all the pain and heartache that comes with that and has decided to come home to be with me. So let's throw a party. On Easter Sunday, we are reminded that God intends for us something better than what we experience here. And we're reminded that he loves us enough to send his son to wear all the pain and all the shame and all the guilt in our place so that we could be completely free of all of those things. Isn't that amazing? What's so great about Easter? If you have given your life to God, if you are a child of God, you should be filled up with joy. Do you understand that? If you understand nothing else this morning, if you are a child of God, you should walk out of here bouncing or leaping or dancing or singing. You should be filled up with joy. You can walk out of here with great hope, with great expectation because you are a child of God. You belong to the King. And your brief time here can be lived in anticipation of unimaginable joy in his presence. If you're here this morning and you have never given your life to him, you don't even know what that means, what better time than right now? What better day than Easter Sunday? Jesus said, it's for you. It's what I intended for you. I offer it to you. I paid for it all. It's ready for you. I just invite you in. That can be true for you today. That's what he says. The Bible says, giving our life over to Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, is as simple as this. Romans 10, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The kingdom is yours. You're a child of God. You belong to the king. It's as simple as that. It's all it takes. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to get right with God first. You sit here this morning and you say, I don't deserve that. You don't know what I've done. God says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. Just come home to me. Just come home to me. I'm waiting for you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the truth of Easter is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And we want to just praise you this morning and thank you because what you've done is impossible and it's unbelievable and we're so, so grateful. We don't even get it 
We don't understand it, but we thank you, we thank you, we thank you this morning. Thank you for inviting us into your family. Thank you for being a loving father. Thank you for forgiving us for all the things we've done and all the places we've been for turning our back on you, for rejecting your plan. Father, this morning we just, we want you to be glorified. With your heads bowed this morning, with your eyes closed this morning, I just want to speak to those of you who are here who have never given your life to Jesus. You have never surrendered to him. You don't even know where to begin. I'd just like to invite you, if God is tugging at your heart this morning and you want to be a follower of Jesus, you want to be a child of God, you want to, you want to stand in line for that glorious inheritance that we are celebrating and describing this morning, then you can just pray this with me right now. Would you pray this with me? God, I know that I have sinned against you. I understand that my sin separates me from you. But I believe that Jesus was your son. And I believe that you sent him to rescue me. I believe that he died in my place on the cross. I believe that he paid for my sin. God, I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. And I surrender my life to you this morning. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to be your child. Father, for anyone in here who has prayed that this morning, I just pray. Pray that they would be surrounded by those who know and love you that they would enter into a family here that can care for them. Lord, we know that for those who enter your kingdom, you throw a party. And so we celebrate this morning what you have done, and we celebrate those who have entered your kingdom. And we pray all of these things in your glorious name. Amen.